Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them and gave, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I, will, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I, am, for I am of uncircumcised lips? The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them, a cha- gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. Uh, friends, uh, I was going to preach on actually why don't you stand you've all been sitting for a long time why don't you stand and we'll pray together and you can stretch while we're praying if you like let's pray almighty God and loving father may the words I speak now be yours may you graft them into our hearts and work in us so as to bring forth the fruit of good works and we pray this for the honor and praise of your name and the glory of your son through whose name we pray amen Uh, please sit down Uh, I was going to uh, preach to you from uh, Exodus 15 to 18, uh, but it became too long and I thought there'd be too much doing violence to the text to make it apply to you in the way that I thought would be a good way to apply to you. So I went back to chapter 6 and 7. Let's start. Uh, Dog pounds are full of them. You walk past their cages and they looked at you with sad and fearful eyes waiting to see whether kindness or the rod awaits them and if you come too close their tails go between their legs they flinch sometimes they inadvertently urinate or simply cower Uh, they are dogs whose spirits have been broken Uh, now I am the owner of two dogs and I love dogs we have two kelpies and they're just wonderful animals uh, and for me, dogs whose spirits have been broken, I, my, first one of, uh, my second or third dog that I had was one who was like this. A dog which 
whose spirit has been broken is an incredibly uh, sorrowful sight. But let me tell you that dogs aren't the only ones. Uh, Perhaps you have met humans who have a broken spirit as well. Uh, Sometimes they have been brutalised by other humans. Uh, Sometimes uh, they have simply been beaten into submission by life's experiences. Uh, But they show many of the same signs. Their eyes are full of sadness. Uh, Life has become colourless, a hopeless shade of grey for them. Uh, They want to cry but often can't. They want to yell out for help, but they're convinced that no one will hear and that no one cares. Uh, Mechanically and hopelessly and helplessly often, they wake to each day with a feeling of dread. Another day to be faced and another day that will look undoubtedly like the day before, perhaps worse. For such people, there's no escape, no delivery, no rescue and no hope. Uh, A broken spirit in a dog, let me tell you, is, is deeply sad, but a broken spirit in a person is terrifying. Um, such people see no escape, no alternative, no light at the end of the tunnel. Now look at Exodus chapter 6 verse 9 and read it with me. It says this, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Uh, I wonder if you can hear this. Uh, The writer of Exodus is telling us that God's words of encouragement, his words of hope have come to a people that, that whose ears can no longer hear it. They are beyond crying out to God as they were back in chapter 2. They're beyond listening to God. They are bound in discouragement. They can no longer hear the sound of hope and they can no longer expect deliverance. Their situation of slavery, their cruel bondage has made them people of a broken spirit. With that in mind, let's remember what's happened since we left Exodus yesterday. Uh, At the end of chapter 4, after nearly dying in a rather bizarre incident involving failure to keep the covenant rite of circumcision and uh, a slip with a knife by his wife, (laughs) Moses returns to his own people. Uh, He performs the signs that God had given him. The people believe and they bow in thanks to God when they heard that God had seen their affliction. In chapter 5 then, Moses boldly makes his first foray into the court of Pharaoh. And he stands in God's place and he speaks God's words to the enemy of God. uh, But the person to whom the prophecy is directed just does not listen. And he says these incredible words and he he says, And who is this Yahweh? I do not know him. God doesn't respond. As expected, the people who are to be rescued don't appreciate what Moses does. The ferocity of Pharaoh erupts into full swing. And as a result, Moses is on the receiving end from both Pharaoh and the people of God in chapter 5. God appears to be absent and Moses feels hard done by God, from God. And so at the end of chapter 5, he levels a complaint against God and look at his words, listen to them in verse 22. He turns to the Lord and accuses him forcefully. It is not so much Pharaoh, he thinks, who is God's enemy, but God, and God has not delivered. Instead, he has brought increased trouble on his people, so Moses forcefully blames him. Verse 22, O God, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. It's that accusation that lies behind Exodus 6. 
But chapter 6 forms a contrast with chapter 5. You see, where God is very absent in Exodus chapter 5, he is very present in Exodus chapter 6. So let's see what he has to say. First thing I want you to notice is the constant mention of who is speaking. The words, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, occur in verses 2, 6, 7, 8, 29, 30, and also in chapter 7, verse 5. In verse 5, we have here, sorry, in verses 2 to 5, we have him telling his people that he is the Lord, the God of the covenant. And in verses 6 to 8, we hear, I am Yahweh, your God. And I am Yahweh who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That is, I am Yahweh who delivered you, who will deliver you, who delivers you. In verses 29 and chapter 7 verse 5, God describes himself as the Lord, the speaking and acting God. And it's a magnificent response to the accusation that Moses has laid before God and at God's feet. God is the God of Israel. He says to his people, I'm the God of covenant, I'm the God of my word, I'm the God of all the earth. I am the God who rescues and I am the God who delivers. The second thing to notice is that the Lord has a goal for his activity. Uh, That goal is that Israel comes to know him in a way that they had previously not known him. Verses 2 to 5 tell us that previously God had made himself known to Israel in some way. However, they didn't quite know his full nature. God had not revealed the fullness of what his nature was to them. They knew him as it were by name, but they did not know exactly what that name meant. And now he tells them that something is going to happen. That will mean that Israel will know and experience the full meaning and significance of the name Yahweh. As he acts to rescue, to deliver his people. He he will be the God of the Exodus from this time on. He will be Yahweh, the God of Exodus. This God who remembered the covenant sworn to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and who fulfilled it in this particular event. He will be known as the God who brought them out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, who took them to be his people, who showed himself to be their God, Yahweh who gave his people the land promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now let's take a look at verses 14 to 27 and also at verses, chapter 7 verses 6 to 7. Now, when we turn to verses 14 to 27, uh, we are invariably tempted to skip over them, aren't we? They're genealogies, and we don't know anything about genealogies, and we don't have much interest in them, really. But if you're a Jew, you read them. Take a look at what's said about these men, Moses and Aaron, in these verses. Look at how they're described. First, the genealogy tells us that they are people of good pedigree. They are descended from Jacob and Levi. But the passage tells us even more than this. Uh, The verses on either side of the actual genealogy give us important information about them as men. And this information appears to be deliberate in letting us know that they are not well equipped to be rescuers. Not well equipped to be rescuers. Uh, Let me explain. Look at verses 10 to 13. These men are not men to whom the Israelites have listened, verses 10 to 13. Moses is uh, outlined as being particularly inept as a speaker. 
He is of uncircumcised lips, not a favourable way to refer to someone, verses 12 and 30. So in other words, he's hardly the man you'd expect to get a good hearing from Pharaoh, let alone to be a deliverer. And having seen him in action in chapter 5, as we've just done, or as I've just skimmed over, our suspicions have been somewhat confirmed because he really hasn't made much progress in the court of Pharaoh with his words at all. But now look at chapter 7, verse 7. This tells us that Aaron, Aaron is 83 years old and that Moses is 80. Uh, they are far from being young warriors. They are far from being ideal candidates for leaving, leading a rescue attempt from one of the greatest of the world's nations. Uh, Moses is hardly a man you'd expect to get a hearing from Pharaoh, let alone be a deliverer. But there's something else I want you to notice in chapter 6 verse 7. Oh, sorry, in chapter 6 and 7. I want you to notice the enormous repetition of I by Yahweh. Just flip back and have a look. Look, listen to verses 1 to 8. In the Hebrew, the eyes are contained in verbs, but they are also emphasized by strong use of personal pronouns as well. So I'm going to read it through and I'm going to try and emphasize them for you. So Yahweh says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and, to, and, and as God Almighty, but by them, but, sorry, but by the name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them, gave them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from, out, uh, from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. It is full of God, isn't it? I mean, this is it's just overwhelming. It is full of his initiative, full of his promise, full of his action and the force of it is overwhelming. After all, think about where we are. We have Pharaoh at his greatest. The last chapter has shown us that. We have the Israelites at their lowest. They are like cowering dogs with their spirits gone. And we have Moses and Aaron at their weakest, geriatric and inept. In other words... Friends, we have a situation tailor-made for Yahweh. Tailor-made. He loves it. For when evil is at its greatest, when people are at their lowest, when there is only emptiness and void and new worlds to be created and new rescues to be performed, then Yahweh can be Yahweh. 
the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet he can also be Yahweh, Yahweh, the one who does not leave the guilty unpunished. Many years later, friends, and you'll you remember this, uh, Hannah would know and experience Yahweh. She would celebrate it in prayer after she'd prayed to God to give her a child. And she'd celebrate it in poetry as she exalts in Yahweh and says, Talk no more proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For he, is, he Yahweh, is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble, they bind up strength. Those who have full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry, they have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven sons. She who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the, Lord, of the earth are the Lord's and on them he set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked he will cut off into the darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces and against them he will thunder in heaven the Lord will judge the ends of the earth brothers and sisters can you hear what's being said God is being crystal clear in this passage in Hannah's passage through Hannah and in this passage here he's saying that situations like this are made for him These are situations when he can be seen to be Yahweh. That in mind, let's have a look at uh, chapter 6, verse 28 to 7, 5. Do you remember hearing chapter 6, verse 5? Do you remember how God said that his goal was that Israel come to know him as the one who brought them out from under the burden of the Egyptians? Well, here we hear that God has another goal as well. His goal is that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. In chapter 5, Pharaoh defiantly said, I don't know Yahweh. Well, he's soon going to know him. And he's going to find it overwhelming. At the end of this activity, he'll never be able to assert that again. And the means for them coming to know this are exactly the same as for Israel. They will come to know by God stretching his hand against Egypt and bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Look and listen to chapter 7 verse 5 the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them later on in Exodus we'll find that it's not only Israel and it's not only the Egyptians but it's that the world might know Yahweh friends I have really just skimmed through this passage and uh, there's heaps of material in it, but my main, my main aim has been to just get at the centre of what I think is going on here. And I hope you've now grasped what's going on. You see, in this passage, we're increasingly exposed to Yahweh, aren't we? 
he has, he's put himself out there and said who he's going to be and what he's going to be like. And we meet him in a situation that he loves. It's that sort of situation where he can be seen to be who he is. And who is he? He's the God of all the earth. He is the one who made the world. He's the one who made humans to live in dependence upon him. The one who wants human existence to be filled with himself rather than with ourselves. And so when God finds a situation when people have nowhere else to go but him, he's in his element. And when he finds a situation where people are arrogantly shaking their fist at him and say, I don't know Yahweh and I will not recognize his rule over the world. And when they are dominating and oppressing the helpless, he Yahweh is in his element. He's Yahweh, the help of the helpless. He's Yahweh, the one who loves to rescue the broken in spirit. He's Yahweh, the God who loves giving the kingdom of heaven to the poor and to the poor in spirit. He loves comforting those who mourn. He loves causing the meek to inherit the world. He cannot help revealing himself to the pure in heart. And he loves rescuing such people from those who persecute them. He's Yahweh, the God of grace and mercy. By the way, friends, as you think of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East at the moment, call upon this Yahweh to do this. Call upon this God who loves doing this to redeem his people because he loves doing it. And now our brothers and sisters in Christ need it. So pray for them. This is the God we know well from the New Testament, isn't it? So I want you in your Bibles to flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And I want you to listen and look as we read it. And I want you to ask what similarities there are in this passage that are there in Exodus 6 and early part of Exodus 7. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Now, did you notice the similarities? Uh, did you notice that verse 2 talks about a situation where there is a powerful enemy of God and where we are weak and in bondage because of sin and the devil? We are therefore unable to save ourselves. But this passage, like Exodus 6, is full of God as well, isn't it? You can see it in that marvellous, but God, in the middle. 
that heads up verse 4. You, you see, what happens here, what happens when God saves us through Jesus is clearly the work of Yahweh who we've met back in Exodus. The God who revealed himself there. He's the God who acted in Exodus and who will inevitably, because of his nature, act to save the world. For the world and us were in bondage because of sin and the devil. We were in a hopeless situation. And such situations are tailor-made for Yahweh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he sent his son into the world to do another exodus. To defeat the enemies of God, to rescue the helpless, to raise up with he, us up with him and seat us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, in, the, in Exodus he brings them into his presence. The equivalent is we are brought into the heavenly presence of God. Elsewhere, Paul will say that through these actions toward the church of God, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Just like back in Exodus. Friends, there are at least a couple of ways that I think we, can, that we'll, we should ought to think about as we address ourselves as church planters or potential church planters or pastors. First... Helplessness and weakness are situations made for God. As you are all so aware, church planting is tough going. It is often bereft of resources, financial, people, our own giftedness or lack of it. And then there are the problems of our own uh, Age, situation, context, background, environment, country, people, not being perhaps entrepreneurial, or there are things of our own weakness. Uh, um, we're uh, too young and inexperienced, or too old and not as energetic as we used to be don't have a musical bone in our bodies, we're technologically sharp or not, <laughs> we're not naturally, as I said, entrepreneurial, uh, or we're prone to self-examination or depression, we're, we're not gifted as a preacher or we're time deficient for a variety of reasons or we're just simply lacking in confidence or there's a location that we've found ourselves in, in this church plant, or, or there's a lack of adequate people with adequate gifts, or, or there's our own weakness and inability. Uh, the list could go on and you can add to it. You, you fill in the rest yourself. But for one or another reason, we find ourselves feeling perhaps alone or bereft. And friends, I have been there. Uh, at one point in my ministry, I was so debilitated that I realistically began to wonder if I would ever be able to return to public ministry. I took a year off in order to work out whether it was going to be feasible again. When I... It's not in my notes, but I'll, I'll say it. When I first stepped back into the pulpit, only my wife could see it, but I was in tears because I thought that would be taken off from me. Uh, and... If you are not there now, then the time may come when you will be. 
and you think, can I do this? But if you are there now or if your time comes in the future, then be aware of the truth that rings out from Exodus 6 that we've learned here. Uh, that truth that Hannah grasped and that we know because of our own sinfulness. Such situations, friends, are made for our God. For he loves the poor, the needy, the destitute, the depressed and the weak. And when we are weak, then God can be strong. When we are afflicted and poor, we can go running to him who is strong and rich. Uh, this last month or so, I've taken to praying a prayer of Martin Luther, who I think gets it right. Uh, and he prays like this. Behold, Lord, an empty vessel that needs to be filled. My Lord, fill it. I am weak in faith. Strengthen thou me. I am cold in love. Warm me and make me fervent that my love might go out to my neighbour. I don't have a strong and firm faith. At times I doubt and am unable to trust thee altogether. O oh Lord, help me. Strengthen my faith and trust in thee. In thee I have sealed the treasures of all that I have. I am poor. Thou art rich and didst come to be merciful to the poor. I am a sinner. Thou art upright. With me there is an abundance of sin. In thee there is fullness of righteousness. Therefore, I will remain with thee, of whom I can receive, but to whom I may not give. Amen. It's wonderful, isn't it? Full of Luther's theology. It's full of his understanding of who he is. And it's full of the understanding of who God is. Friends, much of what is written about church planting is theologically more in tune with the world than in tune with God. And you've probably read it as much as I have. It is triumphalist. Much of it is endeared to celebrity culture. It is formed and shaped by models not of God. Corinthian and not cruciform filled with strong men. But the model of the New Testament is other than that, isn't it? it the model of the New Testament gravitates around weakness, the weakness and shame of a cross. Its heroes are slaves. Its ministers are hungry and thirsty, poorly dressed, not in expensive hotels, but buffeted and homeless, working with their hands, disreputable, Reviled but blessing, persecuted and down but enduring. Like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Weak, but in their weakness, dependent upon him who is not weak. Strong in their weakness so that God might be strong in his strength. Weak so that God's I am strong might be heard and seen. Friends, listen to God's voice to a geriatric Moses and the bruised and bleeding Israelites. It's a world fulfilled in the cross. 
I am Yahweh. I have, I will, I am, I will, I am Yahweh. But I don't want to finish on that note. Uh, Instead, I want you to come back with me to Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. Just for one more point of application. I want you to read with me what God says to Moses. So Exodus 7, 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now actually, the the original language is, is much stronger than that. It says, See, I have made you God to Pharaoh. See, I have made you God to Pharaoh. God is telling Moses that he will function like God in relation to Pharaoh. That is, he will be in the position of God insofar as Pharaoh is concerned. Pharaoh, you see, may never see God. He may never hear God speak directly to him, but he will see Moses. And through Moses, Pharaoh will be confronted with God and he will hear God speak and watch God act. Now, although the language here is strong, the idea being conveyed is as old as creation itself. You see, when God created the earth in Genesis 1, he made Adam and Eve in his image. That is, he made them his representatives on his earth. They are made to rule the world under his rule. Uh, As we know, Adam and Eve failed dismally in fulfilling that charter. They didn't rule under God's rule. Instead, they choose to break out and rule on their own. Nevertheless, the principle is here from the beginning. Various people in the Old Testament understand to act as God toward the world that they live in. Of course, we Christians know that Jesus was God actually and also in function. Not only was he the true God, he lived in the world as God's representative. He functioned as God in the world. He functioned as God in relation to the world. Adam and Moses are therefore sort of prototypes of Christ, aren't they? They look forward to Jesus. However, there's another principle that comes to the fore, isn't there? After all, as God's people, we too function as God toward the world, don't we? Uh, God has placed us in the world to be his representatives. And friends, many people will never see God, though they'll long to. And they'll never hear God speak to them. But they will see us. And through us, the people we live and work with will be confronted with God. Through us, the people we minister to will be confronted with God. And they'll hear God speak and they'll watch God act, as it were. You see, in many ways, it is true to say that we are the only God that many people in our world will ever see. You understand what I mean by that. Uh, It's not that we're actually God. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know that. I know that. And nevertheless, we'll often find ourselves in the position of God in relation to the world. Uh, Through us, God will speak to the world. And through us, God will act in the world. And through us, he will judge the world. And through our words, he will judge the world. And through us he'll exercise mercy. It's a sober truth, isn't it, you see? So if we are God's people, we have an enormous responsibility. We are as God to the communities in which we minister. I don't mean sacramentally, as it were. I I mean through the things that we do and the words that we say. We are God to a world outside of Christ. And we are part of God's process in bringing that world back to him. Uh, We are part of God's process in bringing the word of God and the acts of God 
to that world. You see, if people know that we are believers in Jesus and that we represent Jesus, then we may be the only God, as it were, I hope you understand the language, that they get to hear or see. They may not see the real God. They may not hear, as as Pharaoh didn't necessarily, they may not hear the real God speak. They may never hear his word to them, but they do see and hear us, the ministers of the gospel. And they do see those whom we teach and train and pastor. And so we are to act and speak so that God's power and love are seen in every part of our existence, on our lips and in our lives. We are to speak and act in such a way that they know that there is another way in this world, a God-fearing way, a God-filled way. We, like Moses, are, as it were, God to the world, so that the world might know not us, but there is a Yahweh and there is his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, And perhaps you might join with me. I'm going to pray Luther's prayer again. If I can find it. Let's pray. Behold, Lord, an empty vessel that needs to be filled. My Lord, fill it. I am weak in faith. Strengthen thou me. I am cold in love. Warm me and make me fervent that my love might go out to my neighbour. I don't have a strong and firm faith. At times I doubt and am unable to trust thee altogether. O Lord, helper of the helpless, help me. Strengthen my faith and trust in thee. In thee I have sealed the treasures of all that I have. I am poor, but thou art rich and didst come to be merciful to the poor. I am a sinner, but thou art upright. With me there's an abundance of sin, but in thee there's fullness of righteousness. Therefore I will remain with thee, of whom I can receive, but to whom I may not give. Amen.